Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Hey! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by co-host Matt Cummings and guest co-host Matt Berezi. We are live on WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. You can call us on the air. You can get your opera voice heard. What's your opinion on what we're talking about tonight, 847-866-9687. All right, tonight we gatecrash the party as composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein turns 100 by sharing our team's favorite Bernstein vocal works and taking a closer look at the recent performance of Bernstein's Mass at the Ravinia Festival. But first, in last week's Washington Post, chief classical music critic Anne Majette wrote, quote, In a field that venerates authority and embraces the widespread fallacy that great artists live outside the mores of society, these conditions create fertile ground for harassment, end quote. We reflect on the names named and the reasons reasoned in Majette's extensive report, plus 9.40 p.m., two-minute drill, everything you need to know from the past week in Opperland and our team's hot takes on those stories Matt Cummings working hard for a living, man. How's yeah. life? Oh, it's going all right. I feel a little weird not being up at Ravinia right now. I gotta say, the last couple of days I've gotten used to it. But uh, I, I was just in the in the production of Mass that they did up there over the weekend, uh, and it was a great experience. I'm really looking forward to talking more about it in a little bit. I cannot wait to get to that segment. I'm thrilled also that Matt Berezi, uh is back on the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me back. You made a dreadful mistake, of course, <laughs> to uh, try and redo your performance from what was it like eighteen months ago? It was a while back, but uh, I'll, I'll see what I can do. And really, I'm I I don't know my way out of this booth, so uh, I'm at your mercy. So. Ah, yes, the old lovely studio one here on <laughs> WNUR. Matt, what have you been up to since we saw you last? I think when I was here last, uh, we were in the process of premiering a new work at Urban Arias in Washington, D.C., a piece called Blue Viola, which is a a blues-infused chamber opera uh, based on a true story from the 90s from Chicago about a stolen viola. And that piece... uh, it premiered. It had uh, uh, Alicia Olatuja uh, in one of the uh, the primary roles, and it it went on to uh, it was an artistic success in D.C. And that year, we were able to perform parts of it at the New Work Sampler at Opera America 
right. at uh, Wolf Trap. And so it's it's got the beginnings of a nice life to it. It was performed in uh, Opera Memphis, okay. uh, production there. And we did a production in uh, at Lyric Opera of the North in Duluth with uh, Alicia Hall Moran, who is... Uh, she's on the cover of Downbeat Magazine this month with her husband, Jason Moran. Wow. Um, so we've had some really talented people attached to that show, and I hope that it'll have a, a nice life uh, uh, ongoing. Uh, you, you sound surprised. I don't know why. Like, I mean, I've, I've listened to the piece. <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think it's awesome. So it's played the East Coast. It's played the... The upper Midwest? Well, Tennessee. <laughs> I was going to say Appalachia, which is wrong. <laughs> uh, and it's played the upper Midwest. So when's the West Coast? Uh, West Coast, you know, yeah. I don't. I've, I'm anxious to uh, have a footprint on the West Coast, yeah. and I'm anxious for this piece because it's set in Chicago. I hope that it will come home to Chicago. As, as somebody said, it's funny that it was in Memphis because it's a it's a piece about uh, the blues factors heavily in it. It's set in Chicago, so it's got some sh- Chicago blues infused. And when they did it in Memphis, they said, "Look, our audiences love the blues, and they're going to love this piece." But when you're talking about it, please watch your verbiage around saying like Chicago home of the blues because mm-hmm. we consider Memphis to be the home of the blues and our audiences could turn against you very quickly. It's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic <laughs> advice. Hey boys, let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That is what you're listening to on WNUR 89.3 FM. we got a full slate tonight for you on Opera Box Score. Give us a call. Get your opera voice heard, 847-866-9687. Over a six-month period starting last November, the Washington Post spoke to more than 50 musicians who say they were victims of sexual harassment. These artists, many of whom shared their stories for the first time, described experiences ranging from sexual harassment to sexual assault at every level, from local teachers to international superstars. That was the lead-in on Anne Majette's article in the Washington Post. She's the chief music critic for the paper, which came out just last week. And it is it is a shocking read. The link to our website for that, operaboxscore.com, you can read for yourself. Matt Cummings, let's kick it off with you. This article, when you read it, sounds exhaustively researched. Why is that? Well, first and foremost, it's it's exhaustively researched because Anne Majette is a terrific journalist. She knows about what she knows about that's what which she's writing, and she is really familiar with the subject matter and not afraid to get in and really do the dirty work. And when you're talking about allegations like these, there is often just kind of a knee-jerk backlash to discredit the people who are telling the stories. And I think that this article, part of it is an attempt to get ahead of that and saying, this is not, you know, this isn't he said, she said. These are real, you can't just write them off as being being fake or as being trumped up. These are real problems that are happening to real people. And they talked about it at the time. And the you know we have bat, we have people corroborating this these stories that we're not just trying to throw dirt into the wind and see what sticks. When you read these stories, some of them are just so harrowing. I don't understand how someone else could think that another person would make this up and would mm-hmm. go to such extreme levels to slander an individual, only to have mm-hmm. multiple stories, multiple counts all line up. I mean, Majette has, she's shown her work, as we, mm-hmm. as you would say if you were doing like an arithmetic problem. Uh, Matt Parisi, what was your, what was your gut reaction? What was your uh, hot take on this? Well, it's fantastic that she showed her work. 
I I shouldn't say that it's a shame that she has to, because when the allegations are so serious, one should cross their T's and dot their I's. But we're living in a time, a really alarming time of epistemic crisis mm-hmm. that that people don't believe evidence right now. And so you have to bury them in evidence in the hope that they will believe their own eyes and ears. And that, that's, that's very disconcerting. Uh, it's, um, she's, she's done that. I hope that people will believe it. And I think the power of denial is very strong. So I think there are people who just don't want to live in the world that we're realizing we live in, where there's so much, I don't like buzzwords, sure. but I'm going to say toxic masculinity. Uh, but there's toxic masculinity everywhere. <laughs> Those are some everywhere. big buzzwords, pal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it, it's, it, I think you want to live in a world where most people are good and are arguing in good faith and are good to one another. And we do, largely. But the fact that there are insidious, that there are, there are sexual harassers, sexual assaulters. Oof, oof, I'm a words guy. I'm saying terrible, terrible words tonight. But the fact that there are these criminals lurking everywhere, I think some people would rather just think that it's a bunch of fake accusations then realize that there's a lot of bad people in this world because it's it's a bad feeling to know that this is all around us yeah it's honestly kind of amazing that there can still be a bombshell article about this you know this many months into into us discovering into uh, these exposés of people in Mm -hmm. power who have been abusive and predatory Mm -hmm. and downright criminal but you know it there are there are enough people who are ignoring it or wanting to write it off as a one-time thing or mm-hmm. just a couple of bad seeds that that it makes it it's easier to do that than to admit that there's a systemic problem and that that encourage not encourages but allows for it and certainly enables for it mm-hmm. certainly in opera land when James Levine and his uh, accusers came forward this is what maybe four months ago now it was it was in 2018 i believe or was it at the end of it was around the it was around the end of 2017 end of 2017 i mean when that blew up it was already exhausting and harrowing to read about and then it just it kept happening and kept happening and more and more allegations came to light in the article majet says quote on stage classical music is larger than life but the preparation behind the scenes takes place in more intimate environments than most workplaces. Dressing rooms, rehearsal studios, windowless practice rooms, and hours of one-on-one instruction. And in a field that venerates authority and embraces the widespread fallacy that great artists live outside the mores of society, these conditions can create fertile ground for harassment. So, guys, what are the structural problems of this industry? We're going to focus specifically Mm. on opera and vocal music, although there are instrumentalists that have also been named. What, what are the structural problems of this industry that promotes this type of behavior? I think there are individuals who have really outsized power. And maybe we've thought that's romantic over the centuries. Uh, but now, and I'm sure it's changing. I'm sure that uh, on smaller levels, there are boards and, and groups that choose the winners in the industry, but we are still in a situation where there are great men, largely men, and they're the gatekeepers of who gets to be successful and who is not successful. And you can see, you can see with the uphill struggle to have more women conductors, more women composers, more women uh, general managers, that it's still, still a lot of white guys 
doing all the things and they have such power and there's so few seats at the table for singers, for instrumentalists, for librettists, for everybody, right? There's yeah. not enough work to go around. Training programs chunking out zillions of new artists all the time with no place to go. So then you have just a few guys who have just become, well, it's absolute power and we know what that does. Mm-hmm. And and on top of that, the way you get no the way you get noticed is uh, more often than not to get that kind of one-on-one attention that's what every young artist who's going to a training program craves mm-hmm. is to have the conductor say point at you and say you I want to you know, I want I want to talk to you I want I want to work with you I want to mm-hmm. help you I want to help you to grow and you know everyone wants to believe that it is that that it's a true artistic mentorship and lots of time it is mm-hmm. but you know, not always, as we you know the allegations against Daniele Gatti was that he took a young singer from the Ryan Center a- into a practice room and started started kissing her, mm-hmm. and she wasn't able to speak up because the uh, she was encouraged not to speak up mm-hmm. because she'd be fired and he would just keep on doing it to someone else, and you know that kind of that that kind of world where the where one on one mentorship and behind closed doors mentorship is so important is so important is so critical to developing yourself as an artist and to giving yourself some bona fides to, you know, Mm -hmm. keep moving up the ladder. You are asking for things to happen that no one wants to happen. Mm-hmm. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist with you tonight, along with Matt Cummings and our guest co-host Matt Barese. We're talking about an article in the Washington Post recently by chief music critic Anne Majette, uh, who does an extremely thorough, exhaustive, exhausting job of listing both um, assailants and victims of sexual harassment in the performing arts, in classical music specifically, instrumental classical music and vocal classical music. Here's another problem, I think, that, that breeds this sort of behavior is that by and large, what we do, at least in in opera, is a very hands-on mm-hmm. art form, right? And I can just speak as a director. Like, you are, by and large, you are touching the artist that you're working with. You're you're taking them by the hand and saying, all right, I want you to um, cross stage left on this bar. And sometimes you can just say it, and sometimes you have to touch them and, and, and do it for them or, or push them in the general direction. And, and I honestly think, George, that some of the issue with this problem is that people are so afraid of of losing that kind of immediacy that that often is used as an excuse to kind of ignore the problem or at least to brush it under the rug. Mm. You know, those slippery slope arguments Mm. start coming out about what's next. Are people not going to be able to, are characters not going to be able to kiss on stage? What happens if we take this, if this point that has a perfectly reasonable application in the real world and, you know, remove all sense of reasoning or logical moorings from that and take it to the most extreme version of that argument you can make, where everyone's just on stage standing by themselves in the dark, wearing uh, as many layers of clothing as they can. What, how, what happens to music then? What happens to art then? Of course we can't fix this problem. It'll ruin everything. Right, right, which is total nonsense, obviously. I mean, you can fix the problem. It's not going to happen overnight but it requires a lot of transparency and again i'm just going to speak from the director's side of it like your job as the director is to run the room and to take care of everybody in the room 
And it doesn't matter if somebody steps off a platform and twists their ankle or if someone is sexually harassed. Like, it is up to you to make sure that you are taking care of those people. Mm. And if it's more slow going, then so be it. You know, it doesn't mean that it has to be less immediate. Anything is possible. But it's got to be rehearsed and it's got to be addressed and it's got to be done in a very thorough and aware and safe way. Some of the names on this list, uh, I call it a list. I mean, it's written as an article. It's not just, <laughs> I mean, it's not the McCarthy era. She's not just <laughs> listing people's names. But when you skim through the article, uh, Bernard Uzan, who uh, was at the Florida Grand Opera um, Studio Artist Program as a co-artistic director. He also has his own artist agency. James Levine, we mentioned before. Uh, William uh, Poisel, who's the concert master of the Cleveland Orchestra. Conductor um, Charles Dutois, conductor Daniel Lipton, who resigned from Opera Tampa, William Florescu from Florentine Opera. Is this the end of the list? I, is there, will there come a point when, like, all the tables are full? I, I, I doubt the, that this is the end of the at list. The it's, it's impossible for this to be it. I mean, that's, that, that's a lot of people who are very high up, and if it, they can happen at those com- companies, you know, what's to stop it from happening other places? Yeah, obviously people have been getting away away with it. So if other people have seen that it's something you can do, it's bred itself. So I think we haven't seen the uh, initial purge yet, or the we haven't seen all the damage from the people who are currently in the system who are who are have metastasized. And then of course, you know there'll be new there'll be new predators down the line. But I don't. Where the smoke, there's fire. I can't imagine we've yeah. seen everybody yet. Yeah. yeah. Michael Rice of the Opera Now podcast, the granddaddy of them all. He was on our show right after the Levine story broke in, and his phrase, I, I think, was, was the best. He said, we need to take the sponge to the glass. Mm. I might be paraphrasing him a little bit, but his point, as I took it, was like, we have the responsibility to clean this up. And I think that's, that's my challenge to our listeners as well. Is like, if you're in this business, what steps are you going to take? How are you going to make sure that you are going to advocate for those artists that are in the room with you? What? Do you, how are you going to be able to step up and how are we going to continue to fight the fight to get rid of this behavior? Again, the link to that article is through our website, operaboxscore.com. It is Matt Cummings' harrowing reading. Yeah, that that's putting it pretty lightly, I gotta say. It's uh, it, it just you think that you've gotten to the end of it when it's just one section mm-hmm. and every one of these sections honestly could be its own standalone article. And okay. she has five or six of them that just keep it, it. It is so thorough and just so damning in terms of what's been going on underneath everyone's noses this whole yeah. time. We're going to wrap it up uh, there for that first segment. Can do can did <laughs> we celebrate leonard bernstein turning 100 that's next only on opera box score and wnur 89.3 fm live from chicago you're listening to opera box score more right after this 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page, and our Twitter feed. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist along with my pal Matt Cummings. It's going to be a confusing night with all these mats in here, <laughs> is all I have to say. And that would be our guest co-host back on the show after hiatus, Matt Barese. Hello, hello. What are you working on these days, man? Ah, funny you should ask. I mentioned Urban Arias in Washington, D.C. They perform at the Atlas Performing Arts Center. Uh, did our show Blue Viola a couple of years ago. We have a new premiere with them. Uh, and by we, it is myself and the composer I typically work with, Peter Hilliard, who's based out of Philadelphia. And we have a new show called The Last American Hammer. It is a... Uh, it is a chamber opera. It has three singers, and it has the Inscape uh, Chamber Orchestra will be playing with them, uh, and it opens September 23rd, sorry, September 22nd at uh, Urban Arias, uh, and it is a piece about, um, it's inspired by the, the sort of ridiculous Malheur Wildlife Refuge siege by those militia guys in Oregon a few years <laughs> ago, uh, and this is about a one-man militia who takes over a... Uh, a Toby Jug Museum, a precious little museum in, a, in an otherwise failing Ohio town, and the hapless uh, FBI agent who comes to check it out, as well as the curator who, uh, with, a, with a shady past, who runs the museum. Dare I ask how you got this idea? You know, when you're looking, when you're thinking about writing opera, and when you know that most new work is going to be fairly small in scale, anytime you see a story where people are stuck in a room, you vet it for its for its dramaturgical value. It's like that movie that took place in the elevator where the right. people had sex in the elevator. Yes. There's like, come on. Every time there's a movie in an elevator, there's one where the devil's in the elevator, there's people, there's sex in the elevator. You go, how about this? Because this, uh, this sounds cheap to produce. Uh, so we, we thought, initially we thought that sounds very funny. Like the, the, the initial joke was, what if one of the like bird watcher ladies was stuck in there with these guys? So we thought, let's write a comedy about that. It eventually became... A funny wow, tragedy yeah. rather than a tragic comedy. Yeah. It's a funny tragedy about yeah. about the way we live now, about the, the, the country as it stands mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. And we're very uh, pleased to say that our cast is outstanding. We have baritone uh, Timothy Mix, uh, mezzo-soprano Brianna Elise Hunter, and we have inimitable soprano uh, Elizabeth Futrell as the oh wow, wow. As the, yeah we're doing that's we're doing name. all right and that's under the uh, under the baton of Bob Wood and it's directed by uh, by uh, Grant Pricer um, so yeah I get to work with Elizabeth Futrell in September can't wait well consider me a little uh, <laughs> I don't know a star shot I'm a, yeah I'm a little starstruck just by wow. secondhand secondhand starstruck that's, that's I cannot wait to work with her. I, haven't, I haven't met her yet um, you don't you know. You don't uh, audition people like that, so not really, not exactly. No, no. Uh, but I hear nothing but um, but uh, lovely things about it. As a matter of fact, we're here, we're here at Northwestern. Renee Fleming was on campus. She was the big uh, commencement speaker this year, right. um, and I got to speak with her. And she said, "Oh, you, you, you just you wait. Like Elizabeth Futrell is just a, a darling to work with, and so talented, and you're going to love it." So. D- 
did you happen to talk about sports with Renee Fleming or I don't know? I try to get her hot take on a few uh, on a few things for yeah, the end of the, end yeah, of the show. Yeah, you know, some good calls, yeah. bad calls. Yeah. That that that, <laughs> that dress that she wore when she sang the national anthem, man. It was a black and white number. Yeah, the, the one in the in the in the Smithsonian now. It, well, it needed clearance <laughs> from the FAA. Those uh, <laughs> those wings. Um, I was a little star shocked as well at the uh, performance of the Bernstein Mass. Mm, yeah, Matt it, Cummings. It up was at a Ravinia. veritable who's who of, of Broadway and the in, and opera in the street chorus. Some really prominent singers, people whose work I was familiar with. And name and names I knew like Aaron Blake, the tenor who who premiered the role, uh, the, the the tenor role in Fellow Travelers at yeah. Cincinnati Opera, was one of the was one of the soloists. Morgan James, mm-hmm. whose work I really like on the, in that in that Godspell revival from 2011, uh, you know, it just to name a couple. But and, and Marin Alsop, of course, was was the conductor who led a fantastic reading of of the work. We're we're, we're going to get to more details on that at the end of this segment. Leonard Bernstein, of course, turning 100 this year. August 25th Mm. is his birthday. When you read Bernstein's biography, here's what two things stick out to me. First of all, he basically met everybody he needed to know when he was an undergrad at Harvard. Yes, he's also like a consummate (laughs) genius, (laughs) But, you know, he was just, he was of an era and he was at the right school and hanging out with some phenomenal musicians. You know, last week on the show, we inducted uh, our first composer into the OBS Hall of Fame. <laughs> and and uh, Oliver and I talked about inducting Leonard Bernstein, and we're not going to induct him today. There's no... He doesn't get in on his first ballot? No, not on the first, not on the first ballot. But... To me, he is kind of like the composer we inducted last week. He, he is sort of America's Benjamin Britten. What do, you, what do you guys think of that parallel? The consummate musician, the composer, the conductor, the pianist. That doesn't even start to describe all of the hats that Leonard Bernstein wore over his over his career. He was a musicologist. He was someone who was really instrumental in you know in, in the building the symphonic repertoire in terms of you know composers he championed, most notably Gustav Mahler. He at one point was uh, was a, a poetry chair at Harvard in the in the 70s he took he he became a poetry professor just for a little while and gave a series of lectures uh trying to link some theories about linguistics to uh his his theories and observations about music and musical language uh he and the fact that he was so successful and so prominent in all of these fields and probably a couple more that I've forgotten just is mind-boggling it, that he was just that outstanding. Once uh, I was at um, Tanglewood and a conductor said, what do you do? And I said, oh, I write new operas. And he said, uh, uh, I think I said new American operas. Or he said, what do your operas sound like? And I said, American. And he said, Copeland or Bernstein. And I said, what? He said, Copeland or Bernstein. If you were saying a sound is American, it's either got cowboy roots and sounds like Copeland or it's got African-American music roots, and it sounds like Bernstein. And so when you think you can really boil down the American sound to two guys, uh, you've really left an impression. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, very true. Well, speaking of sound, let's listen to some sound. Uh, Cummings, you you threw a couple clips my way, and we'll let you pick first. What do you want to listen to tonight? I did. I want to pick a little bit. uh, I want to play two little pieces of Candide. Maybe we'll do them Mm back-to-back. Sure. uh, Because they show, like, two very different aspects of Bernstein's composition the first is the end of the first little ensemble about uh, the best of all possible worlds with a little fugue that he does on on the 
on the main character, uh, not the main character, on the teacher saying QED. It's been proven that this is the best of all possible worlds. A- and then I would let's go straight into the make our garden grow that that everyone knows. You got it. <laughs> That this is the best of all possible worlds. With love and kisses, the best of all possible worlds. What a Yikes, not a dry seat in the house when you listen to that one. I, I, I picked those clips because Candide was Bernstein's attempt to write the great American opera, and people can we can debate whether or not it, it became that. But it shows, those both of those clips show what I think to be a lot of the hallmarks of his style, that mm-hmm. kind of playfulness, that use of rhythm, that, uh, that wittiness that borders on irreverence, but then also when it calls for sweep, when it calls for grand gestures, he's got that too in his back pocket. Mm-hmm. And... It, that that's the very beginning of the piece, basically, and the very end of the piece, and I it goes it ping pongs back and forth between those a couple times throughout the throughout the work. That's a great question. It, is Candide the great American opera, or you know, is there anyone other than Bernstein who who could have written the great American opera if it's been written? Maybe it isn't here yet. Well, isn't that the frustrating thing about Bernstein? I mean, he did wear so many hats, and as someone who appreciates theatrical music largely i like his uh, i wish there were more operas and musicals by him so i wish he hadn't conducted or he hadn't written orchestral Hmm. work so that we'd have some more operas and music because so his pieces are largely genius i mean there there are moments of perfection throughout almost all of them have huge dramatic problems some a little bit like there's little bits of west side that seem seem dated or things like candide that borderline don't even work 
And certainly you have things like 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue that's just a leaf pile of things that are, you know, <laughs> problems or genius or what have you. But Candide, every time there's a production of Candide, it's a completely different show. Music comes in and out. The book is rewritten. And it's yeah. because it's got big, big old problems. Yeah. And I wish we had more examples so we maybe could have hit it just perfect. I mean, maybe West Side is the great American opera. It's, yeah. it's just not an opera. <laughs> yeah, that's the point. I, I was about to say that, actually. Um, actually, Matt Barese, that I, I wonder if West Side Story is the great American opera. It's funny, though, like here in the, in the Bernstein centenary year, the go-to piece that opera companies are programming is Candide. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think of something like On the Town. Mm-hmm. That would be interesting. I wish more people were doing mass. I know why mm-hmm. more people aren't doing mass is because the thing is freaking huge. Um, and we're going to get to that in a second. But uh, for my money, I would rather see West Side Story than Candide. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Candide is, I, I feel it presented because it, it bumps up against fewer of the limitations that opera companies have mm-hmm. in terms of it. It's the one of the least multimedia efforts of Bernstein. Right, you don't need to ha- hire some gigantic dancing, right? You know, chorus or corps de ballet or something for it. It's largely all sung in the classical style or bel canto style or what. But you know, you don't. I mean, they yes, they stick in actors and comedians and so forth or, or a musical theater person. But you can just have all opera singers sing it like it's opera, and it goes. Uh, so it's within the forces that you typically hire and your power to staff and create a piece mm-hmm. if you're an opera company. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM celebrating uh, this evening the 100th anniversary of Leonard Bernstein's birth, listening to some clips from a variety of pieces. Matt Cummings, let's let's listen to that West Side Story clip. Yeah. What do you have? So this is from the original Broadway cast recording of West Side Story, you know, a Broadway musical that was famously made into a really iconically beautiful movie. Uh, but even here, you can't really make a clear line between opera and musical theater because the person singing it on this clip and the person who sang it in the original Broadway cast is the lyric soprano Riri Grist. Uh, and so let's listen to her. This is not a criticism, by the way. Of all the music in West Side Story, what made you pick that clip? 
the reason I wanted to pick that clip is because I really wanted to go at this kind of where does he fit in from as many angles as possible. It's pretty hard to pick a bad clip of music from West Side Story. For me, it's a it's a towering work of genius, maybe the best musical ever. Hmm. Uh, and it's been you they it sometimes gets tried to be done in opera houses with uh, varying degrees of success. I certainly am not a big fan of the of the operatic recording that they made of it in the eighties. I don't think it works. Uh, but even here in in the original Broadway cast recording, you have a famous opera star singing uh, the song that if you're going to do a Bernstein set on your recital or as an encore, it's it's going to be this one. Uh, and it, I think that it shows really the a lot of elements of the the question of what to do with Leonard Bernstein all at once. The other thing, comparing Bernstein to say Benjamin Britten, which Britten in my opinion, was not, and that Bernstein is, is that Bernstein was really an advocate for, like, social change in his time. He was an educator, and he was really this advocate. And you, I think that's where you you see that life come in in a piece like Mass, Mass from 1971, the same year, by the way, that... Um, Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice did Jesus Christ Superstar. And, and not far off from Stephen Schwartz's Godspell either. Yes. There's a lot of questioning of religion in 1970. Yeah, man, they were all like taking the same drugs or something. <laughs> yeah. But I definitely had that thought when I was watching the show at Ravinia, the event at Ravinia that it was on Saturday night, and thinking, how does this fit into uh, the whole the, the context of, of J.C. Superstar and, and wow. Godspell? But it was actually written for the opening of the Kennedy Center on the request of Jackie Anassis. What, Matt Cummings, were you given as background when you were rehearsing the piece at Bravinia, if, if any? Did you go in knowing everything that you needed to know, or did um, Kevin Newbury, the director, or Marin Alsop give you any more context so the way that the piece is structured is kind of, is kind of important and how do you answer that question because you have bernstein pulling out all the stops sometimes literally on an organ but also <laughs> with a children's choir with a marching band that's with that is my a, can do can do yeah, <laughs> with a full chorus of broadway singers and dancers with an operatic baritone as the lead role and then we had and then there's a 100 piece liturgical choir that that stands in the back and stands up and, and screams all of this really dramatic music on top of that too. And claps their hands. And we Give did, yourself we credit. We do clap our hands and we had very carefully choreographed sits and stands that we... As full well you should, yeah. I noticed. But it, it for me, it's a piece that is about unity. And I know for the creative team, it's a piece about authenticity. They, they really hammered that home that we shouldn't be afraid to make it personal. That we can, you know, let our own feelings about what's going on in the world into the piece because it was a piece that was written to do that. Yeah. It, and they they uh, took a little bit of liberty with the piece. And one example that comes to mind is the for the prayers of the people instead of just instead of using the text that Bernstein wrote in the seventies that uh, might have come off a little bit dated today. Probably would have. Uh, they had the, the cast and and director Kevin Newberry worked on new texts to try to pinpoint some of the issues at our time that that parallel the original texts and those those were those were greeted with applause at at the performance not just applause barese i mean you could have heard a pin drop at those sections of mass when especially the first one and i i don't know the name of the 
um, individual who read that prayer, but it was essentially about mm. stop, stop taking our children away from us, oh. I believe. Mm-hmm. And like, it was, oh, it was one of many, many moving moments in that show. And I, I give the creative team absolute, uh, support and creative license to make some changes like that. And it's a, it's kind of a sprawling piece and it can come off as self-indulgent because there's just so much going on. You feel it, it can feel if you're not careful with it, like it, it's a little bit rudderless and just trying to be a little bit of everything without being <laughs> anything. That's absolutely right. And, and Oliver was my hot date to go see the show. Cheap date, but a hot date. <laughs> and uh, he, well, he did buy me a drink. I Cheap guess. and hot. That's Oliver. <laughs> yeah, there <laughs> we go. He, he made the same point, Cummings, was that he was saying that it's, there's so much contained in mass it is it's literally like a mass like a weight like there's almost too much in it and you leave it sort of overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and in his point was like five eighths through to seven eighths through the piece you could probably just cut that chunk out my reply to him was was that and berezi you'll i think agree with this is that you need the central character the celebrant to have this emotional collapse and if you don't give him enough time to mm-hmm. go through that journey, it comes off as fake? Yes. It's, the piece is, I love the piece. And I think it is one of the most, uh, af, uh, the, one of the most exhausting evenings uh, of stage music you can experience. Uh, but for it to be, it has dramatic problems. If you have a wonderful celebrant, and it's one of the great sort of singing and singing actor opportunities that exists, Mm -hmm. and if you have a great one and you follow his journey throughout, the genius of the music and the, the excellent performance opportunities afforded him will leave you a mess and leave the piece effective and having done its job by the end. It has to overcome a lot of text and lyric work that is execrable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you don't you don't have the Sondheim's behind, behind the right, scenes action right, like and that's on the, West Side Story, which is part of the reason why I think it's this, one of the strongest works. But I, I'm sure that's true. And Lawrence, yeah. of course. And that's, I think, for when we talk about all the hats that Bernstein mm-hmm. wore, and he was so good at wearing those hats, there was one hat that did not fit him at all, and it was words person. Uh, I'm, I did not realize he was on the poetry uh, yeah. faculty at Harvard, but I guess Sean Spicer is also sucked. on the faculty yeah. at, at Harvard, so they, 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 don't, they, they miss fire sometimes. He should not have been allowed within a mile of a typewriter, um, and I think that's uh, lar- largely accepted. I don't think I'm being heretical in any way by saying that Bernstein wrote awful, mm. awful words and did not know that he wrote awful words. And so Schwartz came in, but Schwartz, for all his talents and all the things that he's uh, created for us. I don't think anyone would say he's, you know, he'll go down as one of the great words people in the canon. Mm-hmm. So you have some mediocre words people, uh, but with the greatest music of all time and a well sort of curated show, amazing forces at work. Absolutely true. Uh, what should we listen to, Matt Cummings, from this? Let, let's Peace let's mass. take it home with the way that Bernstein closes it, when the whole, you know, all the forces kind of come together and, and, and sing a nice, uh, Five eight canonical chorale, sort of, that that even has a little bit of Latin wordplay in it, just to sum everything up that we've been talking about in the last five minutes. You bet.
It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Taking a segment tonight to look at the uh, Bernstein Centenary. I, d- I just want to add a note that, that that last clip that we heard comes from Marin Alsop's recording on Noxos of Mass uh, with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, where she is the artistic director and principal conductor. She and Kevin Newbery first tackled this piece in 2008. Yeah, you can tell that she's had experience with it because yeah. it's just it the amount of time it must take to get a score like this into your body where you're corralling hundreds of people, literally hundreds of people in meters that change every other bar and uh, cannons that like, little fugues and cannons that don't seem to make any sense and some and multiple things happening at the same time she did not miss a beat it was incredible to watch sometimes i found myself distracted from the really great stage direction that was going on on stage because i was sitting right in front of marin Alsop and i was watching a genius at work well because you're a smart guy yeah. you, you want to like absorb and take in true virtuosity that's that's happening in front of you again i mean i will say authenticity Absolutely. You had a diverse, beautiful, extremely talented cast singing some phenomenal music. And this idea that, Cummings, that you were told was that you're, you're part of the work and that it is personal, man, did that come through. Mm. To, to, to as much as I could see of the course, I was sitting house right, luckily, so I could see you on stage left. Uh, just behind the organ. Next to, because the, the, the main liturgical choir, it was supplemented by adult contractors like myself, but it right. was also mostly formed by the, the high school and middle school age singers from the Chicago Children's Chorus who come from all over the city. Yeah. A really diverse variety of backgrounds. And yeah. we were prepared by, uh, by Josephine Lee, who's the mm-hmm. artistic director down there. Yeah. And she was very passionate about this piece. At, as well, you know, at hammering, she really hammered home that this is kind. Of, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity that we have to do this piece and to say something about about ourselves, about Chicago, about music in Chicago, about the children in Chicago, about the the community and what we believe in and what we stand for. And you know, I I I really took those words to heart my personally. So I hope that it resonated with the other people who are in the show as well. We connect the dots between baseball and opera. That's next on America's Talk radio show about opera. Opera Box score, WNUR, 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear-a-hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. This just in, the two-minute drill. 
Time now for everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. The Kennedy Center is uh, has announced its four honorees for the 2018 Kennedy Center Honors for Lifetime Artistic Achievements and a special honors distinction for a work of art and its co-creators. The recipients are Cher, Philip Glass, Reba McIntyre, and Wayne Shorter. The co-creators of Hamilton are going to receive a unique Kennedy Center's honor as trailblazing creators of a transformative work that defies category. According to the Slip Disc website, Theresa May is the first British Prime Minister to attend the Salzburg Festival since Margaret Thatcher. May's arch enemies George Osborne and Michael Gove, devout Wagnerians, went to the Bayreuth Festival. Twelve Major League Baseball teams are double-digit games out of their league's second-card wild spot, so that means 300 active players are all facing a similar question. How do I go to the ballpark and play hard every day when... More than two months left. My team is 10 to 30 games out of the playoffs. More on what that has to do with opera in a minute. On this day, nothing happened again. According to Opera Stats Central website, operabase.com, there has never been a major opera premiere on a July 30th. This was also the case last week on a premiereless July 23rd. That is your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box School with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Hey! Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. 847-866-9687 is the number in the studio. I'm George Cedarquist, hanging out with Matt Cummings. And our guest tonight, Matt Barese. Hello there. Hello. Uh, so, Matt you, Barese, you, you live in Evanston now? In a manner of speaking. Okay. If you live in the Vatican, do you live in Italy? Not really. Uh, then I guess I don't live in Evanston. Okay. I, I Wait live a minute, in the, you live in the Vatican? I live in the Vatican. That's I, uh, odd. That's why I'm wearing this preposterous hat. <laughs> uh, uh, I live on campus. My wife, uh, uh, belting guru, musical theater professor Melissa Foster, yes. is one of the uh, faculty in residence, of which there are only... A few, about five, six now. Okay. Um, it's something that Northwestern is adding now as they as they rebuild dorms on campus. They're adding faculty housing and bringing faculty and residents on. And I'm a faculty spouse, so I live right here at Northwestern. That, that sounds like a blessing and a curse. It is not for everyone. Uh, it is for us. I mean, you are in a fishbowl. It's... Uh, okay. Uh, your job is cultural, so we're not like right. looking for for contraband in rooms or anything. You have uh, dinners little on plastic and treasure events. chests that are in fishbowls. Never <laughs> mind. <laughs> 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 We uh, we don't have to look for anything. <laughs> okay. um, we um, we hold cultural events and and uh, and fun events and. Um, Awesome. Uh, we have a six-year-old daughter. She's on. So if you're yeah. on Northwestern's campus yeah. and you see yeah. a hapless dad chasing a girl on a on a motorized uh, Luke Skywalker land speeder yeah. by Radio Flyer, yes. that's me. That was a dreadful mistake to to purchase that. No, I disagree. That was a perfect. That was a perfect <laughs> move. Your child is going to be happy now. She's happy. She's Brazy, happy. are you also still writing for? 
Oh gosh, neighborhood parent network. I do. I, or... I write for a Chicago Parent magazine. I write the, yeah. the Viva Daddy column yeah. every month, yeah. and I write a, a the paternity test blog each week. Yeah. And uh, if you watch a, a lot of local media here, you'll see me on the Jam, on the U, on Windy you City were. Live. Oh my God, dude, you were on TV. <laughs> I pop up for talking about things to do for families. I pop up talk, telling people how to use aluminum foil. I, d- I tell you know comedy thing what can so you do i'm uh, speaking of tr- wearing a lot of hats <laughs> trying to be chicago's chicago's dad <laughs> chicago's leonard bernstein <laughs> of, of the oh my goodness my my head is swimming right now um is that just because of uh you're you're trying to imagine being a baseball player who can't possibly make the playoffs the, the, i just loved this article because i felt like it really spoke to me as an artist, and one of, <laughs> one of the one of the gentlemen quoted in this article, it's on our website by the way, operaboxscore.com, is talking about why baseball is so difficult, and he said, "Look, it, it's it's because of the daily public work review, whether you win or lose. Mm. It's the pressure from fans. It's the idea of being around other individuals that have overachieved for nearly their entire lives to get to the majors." And I was like. That is opera land. And what kind of what doesn't get said in that in that that sentence so much that I think is another really great parallel between uh, this article and opera land is the fact that so much of your ultimate success can depend on factors that are outside of your control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like the best dentist in the world is probably going to find work. But the best singer in the world or the best baseball player in the world honestly might not because it's so much of it is chance of of mm-hmm. having the stars align. In in addition to the hard work. Totally agree. I think it actually has a lot to do with your colleagues as well. I mean, look, performing live theater is a team sport. Even if it's a one-woman show, it's mm-hmm. still a team sport with all those people that are working backstage, all those people that have worked in the rehearsal room, and dare I say, all those people that are sitting in the audience mm-hmm. watching the show with you. Like, this is a team sport. Aida, you go see a production of Aida, you come tell me that that is not some sort of team working together. And man, when it goes wrong, when someone's not dialed in, it's, it's not fun to watch. And that's how you end up 30 games out of first. And it, if you are, let's say you're Jose Abreu, let's say you're an all-star first baseman and you're stuck on the 2018 White Sox. Like yeah. it is a team effort. Uh, how do you stay in a team mode when the critics have liked you? Uh, but the critics have disliked your production, yeah, uh, and vice versa. What about when you're on a star with, when you're a grinder on a, a team full of uh, stars and celebrities? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you stay in the team yeah. spirit when audiences and critics criticize the individual, but it's a group effort? Mm-hmm. It's a challenge. Mm-hmm. It's totally and, true. The, the article makes the point about Starling Castro, 28 years old, a key part of the Cubs 2016 World Series team, traded to the Yankees, had great success, played with Derek Jeter now plays for the Marlins, and, like, it sucks. It just sucks. And they talk, too, about how, you know, a bad mood or a bad attitude from one or two players can be infectious and be a a contagion, I think, is Mm. the word that the article uses. And I have been backstage (laughs) where that is the case, I have to say, where it it can be toxic if, Mm -hmm. if it starts getting too negative, too snippy, too, too, too much griping. You don't, you don't, it, you know, it doesn't make for a good, for a fun show or a pleasant show to be in. And it can't make for as good of a show on stage either. 
Well, I was at a uh, White Sox game yesterday, and uh, I felt like I was seeing a good Cinderella story because I was watching Carlos Rodon pitch, who was brought up to the majors in 2014 and has done largely nothing. He's been either injured or bad for a couple of years, and now looks like he's becoming an ace. So I thought, you know, for people with vocal injuries or who just have been outshined by the competition, if they stick stick with it, they keep throwing... Some people do rise. You got a lot of space down there, the old Comiskey Park, right? There are not, not so many fans. You can use most days. You could shoot a cannon down the concourse and not, <laughs> not hit a soul. Uh, do you know what I would love to do? Is I would love to go to the after party at the Kennedy Center Honors this year and be able to hang out with Cher, Philip Glass, Reba McIntyre, and Wayne Shorter all at the same time. That's got to be one heck of a photo shoot with with those guys and the and the creators of Hamilton, who probably were inspired by all of them at some point. At, or another. at some point, <laughs> I'm I'm less excited about the Hamilton people. I I feel like they've been so hyped. I, I'm I've never seen the show. I've never listened to a note, so I I can't speak about the art. I'm sure it's phenomenal. Obviously, those creators are phenomenal people. I I just want to focus on the these these four individuals. Can we find a photo of Cher standing <laughs> next to Philip Glass? That's amazing. It's you know that the, whenever you see the if you look at historically all the Kennedy Center pictures, they're always this murderer's row of talent. But <laughs> since the since the boomers have ascended, the the pictures have gotten very weird. That's uh, that's putting it lightly. <laughs> I mean, Wayne Shorter, the sax jazz sax player, Wayne Shorter is just a weird guy to begin with. So I don't know who's the who's the sane one in that lineup. Like Ooh. honestly, maybe Cher. I have to say, <laughs> you wouldn't maybe you know it from from watching her Twitter. But let's wrap the show. Yeah, Cher's the down to earth one. <laughs> yeah. What does that tell you? Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. I'm gonna find that photo and I'm gonna put it on her website. Just just wait for that to to come out. Hey, guys, thanks so much for uh, being on the show tonight. Matt Parisi, great to have you in the house. Great to be here. Thank yeah, you. Um, do you have a, a good call or a bad call or a, any call for us this week, Parisi? I've got a good call, and maybe you've mentioned this before. I apologize if you have. But I see that uh, Glimmerglass is, has commissioned Janine Tesori to write an opera, Blue, which will be uh, the text is by Taswell Thompson, who directed Blue Viola. Uh, and there, there's no better call than having a legitimate opera uh, created by... Janine Tesori. That's awesome. I got to meet Tesla Thompson oh, at the Opera the... America conference. Lovely. Very Just nice man. Lovely man. Lovely man, talented man. Very talented man. That's a that's a great call. Cummings, what you got? My good call is that last weekend's production of Mass is not the last time that you can catch Marin Ossop's work at Ravinia this summer. She's the curator of their Bernstein Centennial because uh, she was one of his protégés, and she's a great conductor. So uh, I know that on August 19th is a concert with the first symphonies of Bernstein and Mahler that I'll be checking out, and I believe that there are some other ones in the meantime. Head to the ravinia.org to see where you can catch some genius. My good call is relatively unrelated, I suppose, to opera, but um, the planet Mars is the closest it's been to Earth in the last 15 years. So the next couple weeks, if you just go outside, if you live even in an urban environment, and if you get like a, a decent patch of, of no light pollution, take a look for Mars for that orange dot, and then you can hum along with me. Da 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 dum 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 da da dum. That's the that's the English, and you coming out with that Gustav Holst joke. That's in five four, by the way.
Hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. General Manager WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer, Norm Waddell. You can visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share, comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at opera box score and hey please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on apple podcasts the creative consultant for opera box score is oliver camacho for matt cummings and our guest co-host matt barese i'm george cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera at the next 100th birthday party you attend we're back on monday august 6 9 p.m central more interviews. We could have a great interview lined up. I'm not going to say it now because I don't want to curse it. Please make sure you do not miss next week's show. We got opera news. We got hot takes. Join us. This is WNUR FM Evans in Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.